You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of two small cycles of lectures by Rudolf Steiner. It's Collected Works, Volume 233a, entitled Rosicrucianism and Modern Initiation, Mystery Centers of the Middle Ages, The Easter Festival, and the History of the Mysteries. Ten lectures given in Dornach between the 4th and the 13th of January and the 19th to the 22nd of April, 1924. Translated by Mary Adams and Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 1 given in Dornach on the 4th of January, 1924. Following on what I had to bring before you in the lectures given at our Christmas conference, I would like now to speak of the movement that is leading us in modern times to research into the life of the Spirit. I referred to the movement that is spoken of under the name of Rosicrucianism, or is given some other designation, and I should like to take this opportunity of giving you a picture of it in its inner aspect and nature. It will be necessary, first of all, by way of introduction, to say something about the whole manner of forming ideas that had become customary round about the ninth, tenth, and eleventh centuries CE, and that has actually disappeared only at the end of the eighteenth century, for it can be found here and there among stragglers, as it were, even as late as the nineteenth century. I do not intend today to go into the whole history of the movement, but rather to put forward some conceptions and ideas that you should think of as inwardly experienced by certain people belonging to those earlier centuries. For it is not generally realized that we have only to go back a comparatively short time in history to find that the scholars were possessed of a world of ideas altogether different from our own. In these days we speak of chemical substances, and we enumerate seventy or eighty distinct chemical elements. We have no idea how very little we are saying when we name one substance oxygen, another nitrogen, and so on. Oxygen, for instance, is something that is present only under certain definite conditions, conditions of warmth, for example. And no reasonable person can unite a conception of reality with something that, when the temperature is raised by so and so many degrees, is no longer present in the same measure or manner as it is under the conditions that obtain for our physical life on earth. It was the realization of facts like this that underlay research during the earlier centuries of the Middle Ages. The research of those times set out to get beyond what has only relative existence and arrive at real existence. Thus I posit a transition between the ninth and 10th centuries CE, for up to this time humanity's perceptions were still very spiritual. 
It would never, for example, have occurred to scholars of the ninth century to imagine angels, archangels, or seraphim as falling short in respect of reality, purely, I mean, in respect of reality, of the physical people they saw with their eyes. You will find that before the tenth century, scholars always speak of the spiritual beings, the so-called intelligences of the cosmos, as we do of beings we actually meet in life. Humans of that time were, of course, well aware that the day was long past when the beholding of spiritual beings had been a common human experience, but they knew that in certain circumstances some apprehension of their presence could still be had. We must not, for instance, overlook the fact that on into the ninth and tenth centuries countless priests of the Catholic Church were quite conscious of how in the course of their celebration of the Mass it would happen that in this or that act of the ritual they encountered spiritual beings, intelligences of the cosmos. With the coming of the ninth and tenth centuries, however, all such direct and immediate contact with the intelligences of the universe began to disappear from human consciousness, and they began to develop in its place consciousness of the elements of the cosmos, the earthy element, the fluid or watery, the airy, the warm or fiery. And so it came about that just as, hitherto, humanity had spoken of cosmic intelligences that rule the movements of the planets, that lead the planets across the constellations of the fixed stars and so forth. Now they begin to speak rather of the intermediate environment of the earth. They spoke of the elements of earth, water, air, fire, of chemical substances in the modern sense of the word. They did not as yet take account. That came much later. And indeed it would be a great mistake to imagine that scholars of the 14th century, even in some sense scholars of the 18th century, had ideas of the elements, warmth, air, water, earth, that resemble the ideas we have today. Warmth is spoken of today merely as a state in which bodies exist. No one speaks any longer of actual warmth ether. Air and water have likewise become for us moderns, completely abstract conceptions. It is time we studied the ideas of these earlier centuries and learned to enter into a true understanding of them. And so today I would like to give you a picture showing you how a scholar of those times would speak. When I wrote my book, The Secret Doctrine, footnote more commonly known as Occult Science or an Outline of Esoteric Science, and a footnote, I was obliged to make the account of the evolution of the earth accord somewhat with the prevailing ideas of the present day. In the 12th or 13th centuries, people would have been able to give the account quite differently. The following might then have been found in a certain chapter, for instance, of the secret doctrine. An idea would have been called up to begin with of the beings who may be designated as those of the first hierarchy seraphim, cherubim, thrones. The seraphim would have been characterized as beings for whom there is no subject and object, for whom subject and object are one and the same. Beings who would not say, 
quote, round about me are the various objects, close quote, but rather, quote, the world is, and I am the world, and the world is I, close quote. Such beings know only of themselves, and these beings, these seraphim, know of themselves through an inner experience of which we have only a weak reflection when we are filled, let us say, with a burning enthusiasm. It is, you know, often quite difficult to make the people of today understand what is meant by burning enthusiasm. In the beginning of the 19th century, people still knew better what burning enthusiasm is than they do today. In those days it could still happen that some poem or other was read aloud and the people were so filled with enthusiasm, forgive me, but it really was so, that we of the present day would say they had all gone out of their minds. So moved were they, so warmed. Today people freeze up just when you expect them to become enthused. Now it was by becoming conscious of this element of enthusiasm, this rapture of the soul that used to come quite naturally to the people of Middle and Eastern Europe. It was by lifting this experience into consciousness, by making it the complete content of consciousness, that people had to form an idea of the inner life of the seraphim. And as a bright, clear element in consciousness, full of light, so that thought turns at once into light, illuminating everything. Such was the idea humans formed of the element of consciousness of the thrones, was conceiving as sustaining, bearing the worlds in grace. And, as a bright, clear element in consciousness, full of light, so that thought turns at once into light, illuminating everything, Such was the idea humans formed of the element of consciousness of the thrones, was conceived as sustaining, bearing the worlds in grace. There you have one sketch such as could have been drawn for that earlier consciousness. I could go on speaking about it for a long time. For the moment I wanted only to tell you how in those days one would first of all have tried to describe the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones in the true qualities of their being. They would then have gone on to say, the choir of seraphim, cherubim, and thrones works together in such a manner that the thrones found and established a kind of seed or kernel, see plate one, in the middle, lilac red. The cherubim let their own light-filled being stream forth from this center, yellow ring, and the seraphim enwrap the whole in a mantle of warmth and enthusiasm that rays far out into cosmic space, red veiling. Everything in the drawing I have made is beings, in the middle the thrones, around them the cherubim, and outermost of all the seraphim. All is essential being, beings who move and weave into one another, do, think, will, feel in one another. It is all being. And now if some other being, having the right sensitiveness, were able to take its path through the space where the thrones have established a kernel in this way, where the cherubim have made a kind of circling around it, 
and the seraphim have, as it were, enveloped the whole. If a being with the required sensitiveness were to come into this realm of activity of the first hierarchy, it would feel warmth in varying differentiations, here greater warmth, there less. It would all be an experience of soul, and yet, at the same time, sense experience. That is to say, when the being felt warm in soul, the feeling would be the feeling you have when you are in a well-warmed room. Such a united building up by the beings of the first hierarchy did truly once take place in the cosmos. It formed what we call the Saturn existence. The warmth is merely the expression of the fact that these beings are there. The warmth is nothing more than the expression of the fact that the beings are there. Let me try to make clear to you what I mean. Suppose you have an affection for a certain person. Their presence gives you warmth. But now someone comes along who is frightfully abstract and says, The person does not interest me. I will think them away. The warmth the person sheds around them, that is what interests me. Or suppose the person doesn't even say, The warmth they shed around them is all that interests me. Suppose they say, The warmth as such is all that interests me. Such a person is talking nonsense, of course. You see that at once. For if the person is not there who sheds the warmth, then the warmth is not there. The warmth is only there when the person is there. In itself it is nothing. The person must be there for the warmth to be there. Even so must seraphim, cherubim, and thrones be there. If the beings are not there, neither is the warmth. The warmth is merely the revelation of the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones. Now in the time of which we are telling, everything was for humanity just as I have described it, even down to the picture that I have drawn on the blackboard. People spoke of elements. By the element of warmth they understood cherubim, seraphim, thrones, that is, the Saturn existence, that is Saturn. And now the description would go further. It would be said, seraphim, cherubim, thrones, these alone have the power to bring forth something of the nature of Saturn. None but the highest hierarchy is capable of placing such an existence into the cosmos. But when this highest hierarchy had once placed it there to begin a new world, then evolution could go further. The, in quotes, sons of seraphim, cherubim, and thrones could carry evolution further. And it came to pass in the following manner. Beings of the second hierarchy, curiotites, dunamis, exousiae, beings generated by the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones, pressed into the space that had been formed, in quotes, through the working of seraphim, cherubim, and thrones, formed and fashioned to Saturnian warmth. There entered the scene now younger, cosmically younger beings, And how do these cosmically younger beings work? Whereas cherubim, seraphim, and thrones reveal themselves in the element of warmth, 
the beings of the second hierarchy take form in the element of light. Here, plate one, see the right side, you have the Saturnian. It is dark. It gives warmth. And now, within the dark world of Saturn, something new begins to arise through the working of the sons of the first hierarchy, through exousiae, dunamis, and curiotities. What is it that is now able to arise within the Saturnian warmth? The penetration of the second hierarchy signifies an inner illumination. Saturnian warmth is inwardly illuminated by light. It also becomes denser. Instead of the warmth element alone, there is now also air. Thus we have on the one hand the entry of the second hierarchy coming to revelation in light. However, you must clearly understand that it is in very deed and truth beings who press their way into Saturnian existence. Whoever has the requisite power of perception sees the event as a penetration of light. The light reveals the path of these beings. And where light enters, we find two under certain conditions, shadow, darkness, dark shadow. Through the penetration by the second hierarchy in the form of light, shadow also comes about. What was the shadow? It was air. Right on into the 15th and 16th centuries, people knew for a fact what air is. Today we know only that air consists of oxygen, nitrogen, and so forth, which is much the same as saying that a watch consists of glass and silver. That really tells me nothing at all about the watch as a watch, and nothing at all is said about air as a cosmic phenomenon when it is said to consist of oxygen and nitrogen. We tell very much, on the other hand, if we know air comes forth from the cosmos as the shadow of light. See plate one. In actual fact, we have, with the entry of the second hierarchy into the Saturnine warmth, the entry of light, white shadow, and of the shadow of light, air, green serpentine lines. And with that we have, in quotes, sun. Such is the way we would have to speak in the 13th century. And what follows after this? The further evolution comes about through the working of the sons of the second hierarchy, the archai, archangels and angels. The second hierarchy have accomplished the entry of the element of light, light that has drawn along behind its shadow the darkness of air, not the indifferent neutral darkness that belongs to Saturn, the darkness that is simply absence of light, but the darkness that is the antithesis of light. And now to this element of light, the third hierarchy, archai, archangels, angels, add by virtue of their nature and being a new element, an element that is like our human desire, like our impulse to strive after something, to long for something. And thereby the following comes to pass. Some say archai or archangel being enters here and comes upon an element of light, encounters, as it were, a place of light. In this place of light, the being will then receive, 
through its very receptivity for the light, the urge, the desire for darkness. The angelic being carries light into darkness, or an angelic being may carry darkness into light. These beings become thus mediators, messengers between light and darkness. And as a result of this, what previously has only shown in light and drawn along behind its shadow, the darkness of air, begins now to shine in color, to glow in a play of color. Light begins to appear in darkness, darkness in light. The third hierarchy create color. Out of light and darkness they conjure forth color. In the time of Aristotle, people still knew when they gave themselves up to contemplation in the mysteries, whence colors come, they knew that it is the beings of the third hierarchy who have to do with color. Aristotle himself, in his Color Harmony, declares that color signifies a working together of light and darkness. But this spiritual element in human thought, whereby he knew that behind warmth he had to see beings of the first hierarchy, behind light and its shadow, darkness, beings of the second hierarchy, and behind the iridescent play of color, shimmering in a great cosmic harmony, beings of the third hierarchy, this spiritual element in human thought has been lost. And nothing is left for us today but the unhappy Newtonian theory of color. The initiates continued to smile at Newton's theory until the 18th century. Then it became an article of faith for professional physicists. We really must have lost all knowledge of the spiritual world if we can speak in the sense of Newton's theory of color. Anyone who is still inwardly stimulated by the spiritual world, as was the case with Goethe, will resist it. Such a person will place before his fellows the truth of the matter, as Goethe did, and attack with all his might. Goethe never railed so strongly as when he had to scold Newton. He went for him and his theory hammer and tongs. Such a thing is incomprehensible nowadays, for the simple reason that in our time anyone who does not recognize the Newtonian theory of color is a fool in the eyes of physicists. But things were different in Goethe's time. He did not stand alone. True, he stood alone as one who spoke openly on the matter, but there were others who knew, even as late as the end of the eighteenth century, whence color comes, who knew with absolute certainty how color wells up from within the spiritual. We have seen that air is the shadow of light, and as when light arises under certain conditions we find the dark shadow, so when color is present and works as a reality, and it can do so when it penetrates into the airy element, when it flames up in this air, when, in a word, it is something, is a reality flashing and sparkling in the element of air, when this is so, then, under certain conditions, we get pressure, counter-pressure. And out of the very real color there comes into being the fluid element of water. Just as for cosmic thinking the shadow of light is air, so is water the reflection, the creation of color in the cosmos. Perhaps you will say, 
no, that I cannot understand. But try for once, really, to grasp color in its true meaning. Red. Surely you do not think that red is, in its essence, the neutral surface it is generally regarded as being. Red is something that makes an attack upon you. I have often spoken of this. You want to run away from red. It thrusts you back. Blue-violet, on the other hand, is something you want to run after. It runs away from you all the time. It grows deeper and deeper. In the colors, everything is alive. The colors are a world in themselves, and the sole element in the world of color simply cannot exist without movement. If we follow the colors in the experience of our souls, we ourselves must follow the movement. People gape at the rainbow. But if you look at the rainbow with a little imagination, you can see elemental beings there. These elemental beings are full of activity, and they demonstrate their activity in a most remarkable manner. Here, where there is red and yellow, you see some of the elemental beings streaming forth from the rainbow, continually coming out of it. They move across, and the moment they reach the lower end of the green, they feel drawn to it. You see them disappear at this point, where there is green and blue. Readers aside, there is a, a, a picture here. End of readers aside. On the other side, they come out again. To someone who can view it with imagination, the whole rainbow is a revelation of the spiritual, of the streaming out and disappearing again within of the spiritual. It is like a spiritual cylinder, wonderful to behold. And you can observe as well how these spiritual beings come forth from the rainbow with extreme fear, and then how they go in with an absolutely invincible courage. When you look at the red-yellow, you see fear streaming out. And when you look at the blue-violet, you have the feeling that there all is courage and bravery of heart. Picture it to yourself. What I see before me is not just a rainbow. See plate two. Here beings are coming out of it. Turning the page ninety degrees, there is courage. And now the courage disappears again. Now the I-E-Y-E is oriented. But now imagine it is there before you in all its colors, red, yellow, and so forth, and it receives a certain density. You can easily imagine how this will give rise to the element of water. And in this watery element spiritual beings live beings that are actually a kind of copy of the beings of the third hierarchy. There is no doubt about it. If we want to get near those who possessed real knowledge in the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries, we must be ready to understand such things. As a matter of fact, without this, we cannot approach even the personalities of still later times. We cannot understand Albertus Magnus if we read him with the knowledge that we have today. We must read him with a kind of knowledge that takes account of the fact that spiritual things, such as we have been considering, were still a reality for him. Only then will we understand how he uses his words. Thus we have air and water coming into existence as a reflection of the hierarchies. The hierarchies themselves dive in. When the hierarchies themselves dive in, the second hierarchy enters in as the form of light.
and the third hierarchy enters in as the form of color. We have reached the moon stage of our earth. Now we come to the fourth hierarchy. I am narrating this as it was thought in the 12th to 13th century. Today we do not speak of the fourth hierarchy, but then people still did. What is this fourth hierarchy? It is the human being. We are ourselves the fourth hierarchy. But by the fourth hierarchy, people did not understand the two-legged, aging, most strange being that goes about in the world today. To those who had true knowledge, human beings as we know them on earth today would have seemed a strange being indeed. No, in those times they spoke of the original human being, of humans before the fall, who still bore a form that gave us power over the earth, even as the angels and archangels and archai had power over the moon stage of our earth, the second hierarchy over the sun stage, and the first hierarchy over the Saturn stage. They spoke of humans in our original existence as earthly human beings. And then they were right to speak of us as the fourth hierarchy. And with this fourth hierarchy came, as a gift, it is true, of the higher hierarchies, but the higher hierarchies had been holding it only as a possession they did not themselves use, but guarded and protected. With the fourth hierarchy came life. Into the world of color, into the iridescent world of changing color, of which I have only been able to give you the merest hints and suggestions, came life. You will say, was then nothing alive before this time? My dear friends, understand how it was by looking at humans themselves. Your ego and your astral body do not have life, yet they have being. They are. What is of the soul and spirit does not need life. Life begins only with your etheric body. And the etheric body is something external. It is of the nature of the sheath. Thus it is only after moon, only with the present earth stage of existence, that life enters into the evolution to which our earth belongs. The iridescent world of color was experienced. And now not only do angels and archangels and archai experience a longing desire to carry darkness into light and light into darkness, thereby calling forth the play of color in the planet. Now desire became manifest to experience this play of color as something inward, to feel it all inwardly. When darkness dominates light, to feel weakness, lassitude, and when light dominates darkness, to feel activity. For what is really happening when you walk? When you walk, light is predominating in you over darkness. But when you sit and are lazy and indolent, then darkness is predominating over light. It is an effect of color on the soul, an iridescent play of color, not physical, but of the soul. Color permeated with life, in its iridescence suffused with life, That is what appeared with the coming of the fourth hierarchy, the human being. And in this moment of cosmic becoming, the forces that had been active in the iridescent play of color 
began to form contours, began to fashion contours. Life as it rounded off, decornered, de-edged the colors, called into being the hard form of the crystal, and we are within earthly existence. Such things as I have been describing to you were fundamental truths for the medieval alchemists and esotericists, Rosicrucians and others who flourished, though history tells us little of them, from the ninth and tenth on into the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries, and of whom stragglers are to be found as late as the eighteenth and even at the beginning of the nineteenth century. In these later times, however, they were always regarded as strange and eccentric people. Only then did the knowledge become entirely hidden. Only then did we begin to acquire a conception of the world that led us to a point of view that I would like to indicate in the following way. See plate two left. Imagine, my dear friends, that here we have a person. Suppose I cease to have any interest in this person, but I take their clothes and hang them on a coat hanger that has a knob here above. From now on I take no further interest in the person, and I tell myself, there is the person. I have no concern with what can be put into these clothes. That, the coat hanger with the clothes on it, is the person. This is what really happened with the elements. It did not interest people any longer that behind warmth or fire is the first hierarchy, behind light and color the second hierarchy, behind what we call chemical ether or color ether and water the third hierarchy, and behind the life element and earth the fourth hierarchy, the human being, the peg with the hanger and on it the clothes, that is everything that exists. There you have the first act of the drama. The second act stars Kant. There is the hanger and the clothes hanging on it, and clever people begin to philosophize in true Kantian fashion as to what the, in quotes, thing in itself of these clothes may be. And they come to the conclusion that the thing in itself of the clothes cannot be known. Very clever. Very clever indeed do away with the person and have only the coat hanger with the clothes and you can of course proceed to philosophize over the clothes you can make pretty speculations you can either philosophize in the way Kant did and say quote, the thing in itself cannot be known or in the fashion of Helmholtz and think to yourself quote, but these clothes they cannot of themselves have forms there is nothing really there but tiny whirling specks of dust tiny atoms which hit and strike each other, and behold, the clothes are held in their form. Yes, my friends, that is the way thought has developed in recent times. It is all abstract, shadowy. But this is the kind of thinking we live in today, this speculative way of thinking. It gives the stamp to our whole scientific outlook. And when we do not admit that we think in this atomistic way, then we do it most of all. For we are far from being ready to admit that it is quite unnecessary to dream in this way of a whirling dance of atoms, and that what we have rather to do is to put back the person into the clothes. This is, however, the very thing the renewal of anthroposophy must now set out to do. I wanted 
to indicate to you today in a series of pictures how people thought in earlier centuries and to help you to see what is really contained in the older writings, although it has been obscured. The obscurity has led to incidents that are not without interest. A contemporary Swedish chemist has reprinted a passage from the writings of Basil Valentine and has interpreted it in terms of modern chemistry. Of course, we could not possibly come to any other conclusion than that it is nonsense, for that is what it appears to be if, in the modern sense, we think of the chemist standing in a laboratory making experiments with retorts and other up-to-date apparatus. But what Basil Valentine gives in this passage is actually a fragment of embryology expressed in pictures. Yes, that is what he gives a fragment of embryology. If you approach it from the modern standpoint, it looks like a mere laboratory experiment, which then proves to be nonsense. For you cannot possibly expect to reproduce the real processes of embryology in a retort, unless you are like Wagner in Goethe's Faust, who is still inclined to see things more from the standpoint of earlier centuries. It is time these things were understood, and in connection with the great truths of which I was able to speak during the Christmas conference, I shall have something further to say concerning the history and destiny of the inner spiritual life of mankind during the last few centuries. The End of Lecture 1